Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Chris Evans here with a special pop-up edition of the Best of the Breakfast Show podcast with Singe from Virgin Radio because I want to spread the wonder and the wisdom of the joyous Jay Shetty. 50 million followers, can't be wrong. Here is Jay waxing lyrical with yours truly about his brand new book, Eight Rules of Love, How to Find It, Keep It and Let It Go. It's out now. Vassos, give our good friend the biggest of intros, will you please? He's the monk-turned-best-selling author and smash-hit podcaster whose viral videos have been viewed over 10 billion times. His latest book, Eight Rules for Love, is out now. So live from the top of the tower, get ready, everyone, because this uptown monk's going to give it to you. It's Jay (laughs) Shetty. Yeah. Jay, just lean in there, mate. Yes, yes. How are you, pal? I'm so great. Thank you so much for having me. It's so awesome to be here. Your life is crazy. Uh, It is insane, and I'm so grateful and humbled by it daily. It's such a beautiful journey. Oh, you're doing such good stuff. You have the number one well-being podcast on the planet. Now, that wasn't in the plan, was it? No, definitely. you'll take it. Of course you will. (laughs) I'll take it. I mean, I remember when I had this idea for a podcast... And I had a company that was going to back the podcast and help us produce it and create it. They pulled out two weeks before the podcast launched. And the reason they told us was they didn't think it would be a big podcast. And they were going to own 60% of the podcast at the time too. And so it was just this incredible journey where... At that point, we were scrambling just to get the recordings in and edit and learning about the whole thing. This was four years ago. And so I feel so grateful to anyone who listens to the podcast and shares it. I mean, you're, you're, it's not been overnight because you're 30, mid-30s now, I'm 35. You? 35. Uh, but your, your sort of uh, experience of um, such profound fame has been brief, really, in, in, in like, I mean, I've been doing this forever. <laughs> Lots of people you have in your pockets have been doing it forever. So I'm trying to catch up with you. So you're sort of new to that. How is that landing with you? Because you're you're sort of six, seven years into being really well-known, I suppose. And it's exponential. Every day it's sort of almost doubling in a way. Yeah, I started... I created my first piece of content 2016, 3rd Jan. So it's now been just over seven years. Not that long. But for 10 years before that, I did little events in London. So I used to have a society at university called Think Out Loud. And every week I would speak about movies, psychology, spirituality, philosophy. And maybe one student would turn up, maybe five, maybe 10. And then for years when I was in London, I had an event called Conscious Living. And every month I'd do a session on philosophy and maybe 15 people would turn up and so I've done this for 10 years before it was noticed and the last seven years have just been a dream and phenomenal and I I honestly believe that because I've done it for so long I still feel I'm just doing the same thing it's just a different scale and so feel very grateful no I can tell I can tell and it comes across you know and that's the way to be because that means you get more of whatever it is you have to give which in your case is gold and may long uh, may long be the case Um, and so so, you you know, t- when one person turned up, seven people turned up, 15 people turned up, it's great that, isn't it? Because, you know, 
you're cutting your teeth, you, you're getting things wrong, you're finding things out about yourself. You, there's not that far to fall. Uh, the less people there are, the fewer people there are there, the more sort of collaborative it is anyway. And then without sort of realising it, you, you've got so many flying hours in the bag. And then you, you, you sort of, you talk the talk, you, you, you know, you have this sort of fluency of currency of conversation. And what I love about your podcast, many, many things I love about your podcast, but what, you, it's so easy. You, you, you know, you may have an agenda. I can't spot it. You know. By the way, there's nothing wrong with having an agenda because hopefully it's a good agenda. But you're so free and easy with the guests. It's you know. Sometimes you say what you think. Sometimes you ask them a question. Sometimes you let them ask you a question. It seems seems to come to you so easily. Have you always been like that? No, so I feel like there's been a few stages. So my parents forced me to go to public speaking school when I was 11 years old because oh, I was really shy as a kid. Right. So my first public speaking experience, I was seven years old. I was invited to a school assembly to perform on stage and I had to sing a song from my tradition and I was dressed in traditional Indian clothes. Now I was overweight as a kid and parts of my body were kind of overflowing from this outfit that I had on and I started singing this song. I've never had a good singing voice. Start singing this song and the whole school starts laughing at me and then I look down because I forget my words and I can't read the words because my tears have smudged the the words on the page and so now I forget the words and now everyone's laughing more and then the worst thing, my teacher comes up on stage puts her arm around me and walks me off and everyone's just cracking up. And that was my first experience of public speaking, age seven. So I was a very shy kid. And my parents were so scared that I was always going to be really shy and quiet. And so they forced me. And so when I did seven years of public speaking training, that gave me great skills, but I still didn't use them. And it was when I met the monks and when I learned this wisdom that's over 5,000 years old and started getting fascinated with modern science and pairing it up and habit change and psychology and transformation, that's when almost the confidence came. And so when I'm having a conversation with people, I hope it comes across natural and organic because a lot of those people I have relationships with offline or I've connected with them somewhat. And so there's, there's a bit of a familiarity rather than a feeling of like, oh my gosh, I have no idea who you are and you don't know who I am. And and I find that that's a harder interview. Like even me and you, right? Like you interviewed me for Think Like a Monk and we really connected digitally. And today, like when I was watching all the excitement for me to come in, I was more excited. And then when you <laughs> greeted me today and it was, that's what makes it real. Like I want to be here and you want to be yeah, here. And yeah. I think that's what makes an interview special. See, it's funny you mentioned about not being able to sing because one of the things I find about your voice is it's so musical. You have such a musical <laughs> voice. It's almost like you're singing anyway. So I don't know what the heck went wrong there. Well, I, well, I grew morning. up as a huge fan of uh, rap and spoken word. And right. so I've always l- loved wordplay. And so I was a big fan of Eminem growing up. And I loved the way he used to bend and twist words yeah, and yeah, yeah. enunciate and pronounce. And you so have a bit of that going on too. I, 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 lo- I, love, I love words and I love language, but I can't sing. Right. Oh, well, it's, <laughs> it sounds like you can, to be honest. But anyway, um, we'll move on. You talk about clients in your book. For people who don't know, what kind of clients do you have? What do you do? What is one of the other things you do for a living? <laughs> so very few now, but over the last few years, I've, I've built a strong coaching practice. So in the beginning, I would work with uh, people that I would connect with, whether it be introductions or people in my community. Then I worked with a lot of CEOs and executives. And then now I generally work with uh a, f- a few people who are living extremely crazy lives, whether it be high performance. Uh, people, some people we've heard of. Yeah, and, and, and people, because it's a private coaching practice, yeah, yeah. Which, which you can't, of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, mention. But coaching's been a big part of my life that I've enjoyed over a, 
the last decade because I think when you can deeply help one person, it translates really well into understanding the human mind more deeply. And so I find that keeping a one-to-one practice is as powerful as a one-to-billion practice because there's there's different things you learn by listening really intently to one person's problems that you won't learn if you're just living in this big scaled up social media world. Yeah, I, I think your journey right now, it, it's interesting anyway, but right now it's really interesting because you're in your mid-30s, right? <laughs> and things happen in your mid-30s. You know, you have this curve of experience and youth and they converge in your right. mid-30s and then your life explodes in a whole different way. And if you think of it as a wine glass, you know, your 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 life so far has been built the base building up to the centre of the stem. And then what happens is when they cross, it becomes like a sort of a goblet and that's where the wisdom and the wonder and the sagacity is in and it gets deeper and deeper and more golden and golden. And you're pretty wise to begin with so i'm wondering where the heck you're gonna go well, you know <laughs> your cup is really gonna overflow us no i love hearing that i mean it's so beautiful I, I think one of the things is i've always been surrounded by older wiser more experienced people i right. think i've always done that since i was young i've never had many friends my age yes and and i think there's a beauty in that i think often we're surrounded by everyone who's kind of in the same boat and even hearing that from you i'm listening to you someone with so much incredible experience and wisdom i'm thinking wow that's so powerful for me to hear from you and so i think there's a there's a respect for wiser more experienced people that's always been there in my life and it's it's what's made the difference when i met the monks it was the same thing i was just like these people know more than me they know far more than me and you know studying at their feet humbly and submissively is is a really special experience and I, I hope in society we continue to do that. I hope we continue to look for the elder, wiser individuals because I think that's a part of society we've forgotten and We'd lost. We'd be mad not to. Yeah. Crazy not to. Eight Rules of Love from the number one Sunday Times bestselling author, Jay Shetty. How to find it, keep it and let it go. I mean, you've set the high, the bar quite high for yourself with this one, haven't you, Jay? <laughs> well, I, you know, I was so it was so interesting because 14 out of 17 publishers that I met the first time around yes. told me not to call a book Think Like a Monk. Right. They said to me, Jay, no one wants to think like a monk. Don't call it that. <laughs> and we still called it that. And so for everyone who did choose to think like a monk, thank you so much. And here this time, I mean... It's a different book. It's a different journey. I, I really feel like my work wants to help people make the biggest decisions in their life. Yeah. And so Think Like a Monk helps you decide how you feel about yourself. And the next biggest decision we make is who do I love and who do I receive love from? And so that's what this book helps you do. It's quickly about Think Like a Monk, right? I was having a giggle to myself this morning on the way in because I know that, you know, various interviews over the years have been pushed back, you know. Uh, you know, he was a monk for, for three years. Yes. And now you, you've had, you know all this, yeah, yeah, yeah. this playbook. And so, so I, I think in the future you should because you could say, okay, fair enough. You know, um, how old were you when you became a monk? I was twenty-one, going on twenty-two. Twenty-one, right? So twenty-one to twenty-four. So you know, I'm not the cleverest person in the world, but that's that's an eighth of your life, right? So you're a monk for an eighth of your life, quite substantial, especially you're. It's almost, I would say, half your adult life. Then maybe more, maybe mm -hmm. most of your adult life up until then. But the older you get, the less it becomes as a percentage. So you were a monk for a bit. So you should reissue something. Think a bit like a monk. That shuts him up. That's isn't it? genius. Come that's on. genius. Yeah. And and you know, that's the interesting thing. Like I think even that book, like for me, it was really about celebrating the experience of monks who'd been monks for 40 yeah, years. Exactly. It wasn't even about my it was about my three years somewhat, but really it was about the studies on monks' brains and like the incredible techniques and tools. It was more like a paying homage to their life. No, I get it, I uh, get than it. Even I, mine, yeah. I loved it. And um Thank you. The people that had an issue with it, interesting, just interesting. You Thank know, you. how much projection was 
in that, I suppose. Right, Eight <laughs> Rules for Love, Jay Shetty. Tell us about the four ashrams. Let's get right into it. Come okay, on. so I believe that we think of love as like, I like someone and then you love them, right? Like you kind of feel like that's how it goes. And actually there's this whole period in between called learning. And there's four stages of how to learn to love almost. And so the first stage is preparing for love, uh, which is almost like connecting to the love within yourself, learning self-love. So it's how do I love myself? Then the second stage is practicing love. Practicing love is like, how do I learn to love someone else? We almost assume it's we assume people know how to be parents. We assume we know how to love people. We we assume these really big things. You don't assume someone knows how to drive a car, but driving a car is far more simple than being a parent or falling in love with someone. You have to take an exam for that. I'm not saying we need exams to fall in love with people, but the idea of there has to be some practicing. Uh, and then the third stage is protecting love. I think so many people in the world, unfortunately, go through heartbreak and pain and stress and people get treated miserably and abused and there has to be a part of us that protects love within ourselves. and then finally perfecting love getting to that stage where we don't just love our wife and our partner and our kids we love each and every person i felt loved by you when i walked in here this morning uh, and whether you call that kindness or whether you call it abundance or whether you call it just appreciation and gratitude i think there's a way of showing love to every person you meet in the world of commerce, you know, the playbook, one of the playbooks is, you know, you can you can ready, um, aim and fire. But then there's that great phrase, ready, fire, aim, because yeah. there's no such thing as the right time. You know, sometimes it works in business. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it works in love, <laughs> but not so often. Um, although we're also keen to be in love sometimes. We, you know, we go in with both feet. We borrow a foot and go with that foot, and, you know, whatever. Get all the feet in there. And then we have to go backwards, don't we? And sort of reverse engineer what it might be. Again, not dissimilar to the four stages. Yeah, absolutely. I think chemistry is something that we're all fascinated by. I was talking to a friend this morning and he said, oh, I'm talking to this girl, but I don't really feel any chemistry. And I was like, well, what does chemistry actually mean to you? Like, tell me what it actually means to you. He was like, I don't know. Like, I, it's just that thing. I don't feel that spark. And so I broke it down for him. The studies show that up until age 25, because our prefrontal cortex isn't fully formed, we make decisions largely based on feelings and emotions. And then after 20, which is where we really feel a lot of the spark. And you'll remember this. When you were younger, you felt more chemistry with more people. It was so much simpler. It was so much simpler. <laughs> and then after 25, you make decisions based on reasoning and self-control. And so after 25, we struggle to feel chemistry with people, which means when you date later in life, you don't find that spark as immediately. Yeah. And so I think we've over-exaggerated and overrated this idea of a spark as opposed to character and compatibility, which is what long-lasting relationships are based on. There's loads of little side notes here, you know, sort of handwritten, which I love. Is that your handwriting? <laughs> is it? Where? Where are you know, when you, you have all these oh, things yes, going yeah, on. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, is yeah, that yeah. Your, Are they your notes? They are They are uh, little little bad sketches. I'm not an artist <laughs> either. I'm not a singer or an artist. So it's my, my ability to try and sketch, yeah. Uh, you reference your own life a lot, which is really important because, you know, there's, there's more signal there and less noise. Um, you talk about Rowdy quite a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us about the chapter with regards to your own relationship, as much as you want to, by the way. Tell, yeah. me, tell me to go and, and uh, take a run and jump. Uh, with re reference to your partner is your guru. Yeah, absolutely. So this is probably, I think there's a couple of chapters that, there's a chapter on karma and I've redefined what karma is and I think people will find that really interesting. But 
I talk about your partner is your guru, which if you read that, you go, no, my partner's annoying, right? Like, you, you know, <laughs> no one thinks, oh, yeah, my partner's my guru. I'm going to learn from them. And what I realize about, this, realize about this chapter is because your partner sees the most intimate version of you, because they see you in all your flaws and everything else, they actually get to be your best teacher because they're the one person you can't lie to, you can't hide anything from. Like, my wife knows if I meditated in the morning or I didn't. My wife knows if I've worked out this week or I haven't. My wife knows if I've been eating sugar all day or, or being healthy. Like, she's... <laughs> absorbing all of that and she's mirroring it back now when your partner's your guru the idea is you don't do that through criticism and judgment i think one of the greatest gifts my wife's given to me is she never criticizes me or judges me for my mistakes but she's she's a mirror yet that shows me all the challenges that i have and then i feel inspired to want to change not for her but change for myself and so i think it's a really special idea of like how can you use your partner to be really aware of your challenges rather than and i'll give you an example like you know my wife will call me out if she thinks that something's not an integrity or i'm not being authentic or she'll call me out if she thinks i need to work harder on something and i think that's a beautiful thing we need to let our partners be people that can challenge us and make us better. But there are ways, aren't there? There because are. You have to pick your fighting style. Yes. I can't believe he's got a section, you know, pick your fighting style, identify your partner's fighting style and prepare for the fight. Set a time for the fight. <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, so here's the thing, right? Like everyone argues. Every <laughs> single person in the world who's in a relationship will argue because yeah. there's no one. And you all have that friend that says, oh, we never argue, everything. And yeah. I'm like, well, then maybe you can't have uncomfortable conversations with your partner. So I learned this with me and my wife. I realized very early on that we fought very differently. So my version, which I called venting in the book, there's three styles. I call it venting, my one, which is I want to talk right now and solve this right now. Yeah. That's my fighting style. My wife's fighting style is what I call hiding. She wants to go away into her room. She wants to ignore me for two days. And then she'll come back and have digested it all and, be, you know, be able to talk it out yeah. or whatever it may be. And you won't be able to remember what it was about because that's our style. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the thing that happens there is I used to think, well, because you want to hide, that means you don't care as much as I do. Yeah. You're walking away from solving the problem, which means I care more about the relationship than you do, which isn't really true. It's just that she fights in a different way. She needs time to digest. I don't. So now we meet in the middle and we say, look, you need two days. I need now. Let's meet in 12 to 24 hours and figure it yeah. out. And that creates a healthier balance rather than this issue that turns up. The third style I call is exploding where someone goes, I just need to talk about my emotions. I want you to hear my emotions. And a lot of us look at that person and say, oh, well, just don't worry about it. Get over it. But that's just their style. It's almost like someone wants to fight MMA and you want to box them or you want to wrestle. <laughs> so when your fight styles aren't matching, you can't, you can't really figure it out. So you have to have the same, not the same fight style, but you've got to be aware of how someone fights. And we were talking about it before because you were coming in. Often if you schedule, you know, a more sensible time to talk about things, not in the heat of the moment, they sort of figure themselves out anyway. They sound so silly, don't they? They do like, sound, they do sound embarrassingly silly. Yeah, embarrassing. <gasps> and, and this is the point, right? We choose to fight when someone walks in through the door. And the research shows that in our normal human day, yes. we can deal with seven things at a time. When we're having acute stress, that number seven drops to two to three. Imagine someone coming home back from work through the door. What? How many things they can deal with? Probably just about one. Yeah. And all of a sudden they hear, oh, you didn't wash the dishes or you haven't done this or, you know, what about this weekend? All of a sudden that person's triggered. Now you're fighting about something that you don't even care about. Yeah. And, and you haven't talked about the real issue. 
And, and the joy in taking a step back as opposed to taking a step forward and getting used to that space and that grace, that can become addictive as well. Yes. You know, and again, you're more in the moment. You can see, you know, you don't have to be 10,000 feet up in the air to have a 10,000 foot point of view. You well can, said. One step can achieve that, can't it? Well said, yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, expect, expecting love versus expressing love. I love this. Uh, yeah. Focus on receiving love and you'll experience less love. Focus on giving love and you'll experience more love. Try it, it works. Yes. I, I mean, that's the biggest trick of it all. I think love is something that we wish for, we wait for. We hope that the person's going to smile at us when we get on the bus. We hope that the receptionist is going to greet us, you know, in a, in a wonderful way. We hope that the person we bump into at work has good news. And it's almost like we're waiting for people. Waiting, to, waiting, waiting, waiting. Oh, waiting. No. And we don't realize oh. that you could greet someone with a smile. You could open the door for someone. You could say a kind thing to a stranger. You could say, I love you to someone else and I think when you lead in that way you don't realize that when you say I love you when you say I appreciate you when you say I'm grateful for you that simple expressing yeah. love means you're experiencing that loving exchange right there like we had when I walked in and so I think that's what I'm encouraging people to do is stop expecting love yeah because that is agony it's, it's agony it's exhausting even when it happens it's unfulfilling because if you get it once <laughs> you then go okay when's it going to happen next yeah. and if you busy yourself by giving it instead of waiting for it then you don't even think about it anyway you don't because you're feeling it the oh. whole time and so I just want more and more people and, and you know what it is and, I'll, and, and I know we struggle with that we think oh that's a bit soft and that's a bit sentimental you know what it is I have too many friends who regret the last thing they said to a family member they yeah, lost totally. or regret the last conversation they had with a parent before they lost them and so you know, not to live life in a morbid or depressing way, but to live life in a way of like, I really value this person. I want them to know it every second they're alive. I think that's a good way to live. I agree entirely. And you never know. Sam Harris says, you never know when the last time is going to be the last time. Yeah. You never know when the last time you're going to play football with your mates at school because nobody yeah. says, oh, by the way, this is the last time. Those things just happen. And then in a few years hence, you go, oh, that was the last time. Yeah. You know, and Tash, my wife talks about that all the time now. Yeah. Let's, let's um, rewind to the start of the book. For this one over here, uh, for lonely see solitude um two versions of what could be on the face of it the same thing but not necessarily so so this is Sinead a Sinead HJ Sinead yeah. and you are enjoying a period of solitude yeah well no I was saying like for the first reading at the beginning of the book you talk about being alone um and often people will say to me are you lonely I live just me and my dog and the last year I've been working with a coach as well and I've found I've come to a place where I'm probably happier than I've ever been I love that. um you oh. know and it's like I, d I don't ever feel lonely at all in fact you know I probably feel happier and like more you know what I mean? and the time I do spend with people is is much nicer but I also feel like you know from past relationships and devastation all the rest of it this is so important mm. to now to know that it's fine to be on your own and actually you can have I mean a lot of my friends who are married are jealous of the time <laughs> <laughs> well we start on our own don't yeah. we we sort of end up on our own absolutely yeah. you know. absolutely. I think it's such an important thing to so I'm really glad you oh, well I love seeing a real life example of it because I think it is so true and I think we've been made to believe that being alone means you're unworthy or inadequate and it's like oh well you know you turn up to a wedding without a plus one it's like oh poor you like you next like it's this idea that being single is 
is a bad thing. Yeah. And actually, when people do it properly, like it sounds like you are, which is wonderful, you're actually feeling all the benefits of it. And now, if you were to meet someone, if you ever want to do that, you'll never settle for less than you deserve and because you exactly already know how much you deserve, which is so beautiful. That's exactly it. Because I think previous to this, I didn't have self-worth. I didn't really have like that, that feeling that I didn't love myself. So every partner was completely the wrong choice for me. Yeah, and so. you were lumping it all on them as well, weren't you? Exactly. And then also the devastation when that relationship ends because you're like well that just compounds the fact that you don't have any self-worth so yeah. it's such an important step I'd you can't say for give anyone. unless you've got it can yeah. you? Yeah. you can't transmit yeah. what you haven't got I've got, I've got these two friends uh, Marta and Lewis uh, who, who, are, who are deeply in love now which is beautiful and they both have spent time alone doing their own work and incredible people and she put up on our Instagram yesterday she wrote um, we don't make each other happy we make each other happier and and I love that. Like that to me was a great idea of the you know they're not looking to each other to make each other happy, yeah. making each other happier. And I think that's what a relationships about. What about codependence versus co-independence? Because I think me and my wife were very co-independent. Yes. And I think that does work. Was codependence? I mean, it can work, but it's not as healthy. Yeah. You know. And often I still feel on my own. I don't feel alone. Yeah. But I don't. You know, I feel you know on my own a lot when I'm not really with Tash. I think about her sometimes, but mostly I'm doing my own thing, and she's doing her own thing as well. Yeah. And so. But it's all Disney's fault, isn't it? <laughs> it does go back to the movies, yeah. The, the knight in shining armor and the damsel you talk in about distress, this. and yeah, all of these ideas that have been planted into us. Like someone's going to come and save you, which means you need saving. Like, and so we grow up with this subconscious idea that oh, one day my prince will come and save me from this terror. Dressed and as a frog, yeah, dressed as a frog. First. Yeah, exactly. It's just all these ideas, and 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 ultimately the the concept that someone out there is going to fix me and I'm broken. And, and I think we carry that around subconsciously. We don't say in those words. And I agree with you. Like my wife and I, because of our work schedules, spend a fair bit of time apart. And by the way, that's our lifestyles. But there's a lot of people who'd say, well, well, we, I don't travel for work, Jay. I don't, I don't, I'm not on a plane for work. I'm not moving around. I'm with my partner every day. I think it's so important still within that to take out time by yourself monthly, even if you are in a relationship. And that doesn't have to be like a weekend. It could be an hour, it yeah, could be yeah. two hours. I'm not talking about taking a retreat. It's just doing what you can with what you have and where you are. It's so interesting, isn't it, Vas? Because you, you and I, I think we have quite similar marriages, mm. but, you know, and all week in a way we have a functional sort of business organizational uh, relationship tash and i because we've got four kids we've got it all going on wow. i get up at four we've always slept in almost always slept in separate bedrooms you know we prefer it that way it's better that way and it's like we're working towards a show and the show happens at the weekend and the weekend we get together and then we have our explosion of fun and that's our movie that's our little disney you know <laughs> mini epic but the rest of it it's it's sorting out the catering it's getting all the actors there at the right time Time. it's messing with the script you know if, if the disney approach works as long as you focus on the production not the movie yeah do you know what i mean i love that i love the fact that you you you, you do all of the quotes you know <laughs> the love quotes you had me at hello i wish i knew how to quit you you to me are perfect you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. By the way, this isn't Jay's advice. This yeah. is what he's pointing out is yeah. wrong yeah. in the world of show business. Yeah. I also had a go at um, a younger self-meditation. Oh, I love that. When I, when I started. It's it quite early in your book and it was great. Do Thank you want to talk you. a bit about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. This is probably one of my favourite things to do and it, and it actually changed my life. The reason I even started creating the work that I do today seven years ago was because I did this meditation and I realized I would have been really unfulfilled if I didn't. So 
In this meditation, you close your eyes, you spend some time and you revisit your 10-year-old self. And you ask yourself, what do you need to say to your 10-year-old self that maybe your 10-year-old self never heard from family, from parents, from friends, from teachers? What is that that they haven't heard yet or they haven't digested yet? And you say it to them because we don't realize there's a 10-year-old inside of us right now. Most of our adult tantrums are all from our 10-year-old inside of us that was never pacified or satisfied. So tell your 10-year-old self everything you wish you were told when you were 10 years old. And then take a moment and say, what advice do you have for me? What wisdom do you have for me? What did I forget that I knew about myself at 10 years old that I left behind? What wisdom do you have for me? And if you just take a few moments to do this, I lay it out in the book, as you said, I promise you, you leave there with a really profound thought from your 10-year-old self, not from me, not from some other power, just from within yourself. You'll be able to guide yourself. My favourite letter was the one to your current self, because I've experienced that before, and it's really great, the practice, and it's all in Jay's book if you want to follow it. But... A letter to your current self. Yeah. I've never heard that before. Like, thanks, mate. <laughs> Sorry about today. Sorry about yesterday. Uh, by the way, we're stuck with each other, aren't we? The, your current self. That yeah. made me really emotional. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've also done the opposite, which I love as well, which is almost fast forwarding till age 90 or 100 and having a conversation with yourself and saying, well, what am I going to regret at that point that I didn't do at this age, my yeah, current yeah, self yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, you can still change it. You can still do it right now because you're not 99 or 100. So good, uh, man. Which, which part of the book are you happiest with or you, has, has most people wanted to talk to you about? Is the one bit that stands out more so than So there's a couple. There's the karma chapter that's big. There's the partner is your guru that you asked about. Um, I think the loneliness one is a big thing. I think there's a lot of people responding to that right now. Like that's that's at a big reception. The one that you kind of mentioned this with your wife, uh, your um, purpose comes first. Yeah. And so that chapter is really interesting for a lot of people because I'm saying that purpose comes before the person, yep. but for them as well, not just for you. And I think people often think, yeah, my purpose comes first, but they, I should still be their purpose. And I think when you're trying to become someone's purpose, it can be really unfulfilling because that's where that codependency takes off. And so what I encourage in that chapter is help your partner live their purpose and help yourself live yours. And I promise you, then you'll bring this incredible energy to your partnership. But if you become your partner's purpose, that's where the clinginess, that's where the difficulty, that's where the challenges all start to come in. When you had that six, seven days of reflection, when you had a bit of a wobble because what people were saying about you. So your wife was in London. Yeah. You were on your own in Los Angeles. So you weren't lonely. It wasn't solitude. It was somewhere in, was it somewhere in the middle? Yeah, I would, I would call that like, and I, and I really believe being in that discomfort zone of you're trying to get to solitude, yeah. but you're currently at loneliness. But I find that if you outsource that, and a lot of us do this, when we have a challenge or a big decision to make, we ask everyone on our WhatsApp group or our text thread, right? We message everyone and go, what do I do with this problem? And you crowdsource the idea. And now you've got like 70 responses from all your friends. <laughs> you don't do any of them because 70 is too much and you're still in the same but boat. But it fills the time. But it fills the time and it makes you feel better. And my approach is, well, let me make sense of it myself yeah. if I want to get to solitude if I want to feel confident in myself I'm going to have to get there by myself of course I'll take a bit of wisdom and insight but I've got to walk that path and so that's what I do if I'm ever struggling with anything I go inward rather than outward initially because if I go outward I'll get lots of other people's projections and opinions and ideas everyone's ultimately projecting their own limits or their own ideas onto you whereas when you take a moment and that's why in my book I'm not just giving you advice and saying this is what Jay thinks you should do or I think I'm saying here's what I want you to do for yourself go inward and sit with that thought what do you think 
your thoughts would be, your experience would be, your takeaways would be if you went back to the monastery for another three years now? If I went back now? Yeah, for three years. Do you know what? I don't know if I, at this point, have... I, when I was 21, going on 22, I had this, like, youth of... I'm ready to do anything and everything. And I was just like, whatever they tell me to do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it really well. Now, if I was to go back, you know, it's so interesting how your mind gets more like judgmental and like critical. And uh, but I do go back every year for a couple of weeks. I find it to be extremely therapeutic, therapeutic. It's nice to be in a place where no one cares about what you're doing. Like no one cares. They don't really know. They're not really aware. And so they, they look at you as just who you are. And so almost sometimes it's nice to be seen forgetting your this layer of your life that you live by yeah and so to be only seen as your first self which has no other coverings is that a release for you it is a release it is a release because it connects you to it's a liberating feeling yeah, yeah. because it connects you to the self that is living through all of this right like imagine going back to just who you are and being seen as who you are the, the human self all of us need that uh, in the monastery there's no mirrors uh, so you we lost sense of our physical identity so you can only understand That's a so deeper identity of yourself mirrors oh darn those mirrors and those cameras and a reflection lakes ponds <laughs> silver foil because <laughs> um, <laughs> they will say which 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 way should you wrap your chicken for shiny foil outside or, or dull foil outside oh, dull so you can't see so yourself you can't see. yeah oh, exactly wow. um i know that you've been talking about the next five years we've only got a minute left joe yeah. sorry but yeah, um all good my wife spookily my wife asked the same question to me on saturday around the fire fire pit you know, five years time, where do you want to be? I, I thought she'd been listening to Jay. What's because because you talked about it on a podcast recently? Yeah, and she said, "What what what do you think? Where do you, where do you want to be?" I said, "I just want to be. I just want to be here." Yeah, I don't I don't want more of the same. I just want the same. Yeah, and I really really meant it. I think I meant it. What do you, five years time? You've thought about it a lot in thirty seconds. Yeah, and I yeah, and I don't. Th I I agree with you. I don't think it's about. I don't have an external vision of it. I just want to make sure that I'm never living life on a treadmill and I'm never living life just doing the thing you're expected to do. I think that's, it's almost like you work so hard to do something that you're not expected to do and now you're going to go backwards. Yeah, and yeah. I always want to live a life that's truly authentic to where I am. So break the mold now and again. Yeah. Get the mold. That worked. Absolutely. Smash it on the floor. Exactly. Let's, let's get another one together. Yeah. Wow. So good. Do you tell a story about... Um, Somebody, a student making something, didn't they, when they asked to make something? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Car it. Was it carving? It's an old was it? Zen what would you like to carve? It's a Zen, yeah, it's a Zen parable where a Zen teacher asks a student, uh, carve carve me the Buddha. Because he knows he's good, a good woodworker. Yeah, he's a good woodworker. So this person carves this beautiful Buddha made out of wood, gives it to the teacher. The teacher looks at it for two seconds and chucks it away. And the idea was that he wanted him to carve the Buddha in his heart, not, not carve a physical thing. So and I think funny. we're so obsessed with building external physical greatness but really what's being asked of us is to take that internal path. Right, we're out of time. Um, we really are over time now. Anything else you want to say to people? No, listening? no, no. Thank you so much. And please come and see me on tour. I'm going to be in London at the Palladium, All right, uh, May 23rd and 24th. Okay, that's Jay Shetty. Come back and see us, man. Thank you, mate. I would love All to. All right, how to find it, keep it and let it go. Eight Reels of Love from the number one Sunday Times bestselling author, Jay Shetty. This will be another one, no doubt about that. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Cinch. Virgin Radio. All right, that was Jay Shetty. Thanks for listening. Why not listen back to some of our other podcasts from the likes of Richard E. Grant, Dame Judi Dench, and even Russell Brand. Okay, goodbye. Thank you very much indeed. Rachel, review. Ta-da. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 